This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. First reading today is from John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second Bible reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold, me, you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, one of the striking, most striking anticlimaxes of all history is surely the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. Paul was dramatically converted, you remember, by meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he was given a mighty task, commissioned to preach the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. And he'd gone as far in this commission, he'd gone as far as mainland Greece, to the cities of Corinth and Athens and Thessalonica and Philippi, that city that was named after King Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. And people all over his journeys had turned to Jesus Christ and church communities had started. But he'd also faced hostility and persecution. In Philippi, you can read about this in Acts chapter 16, he'd been surrounded by a mob, beaten with rods and put in prison. 
before being quite miraculously released. And that's just one of the stories of his persecution. Then he'd headed back to Jerusalem, carrying with him a a generous gift from the Gentile churches to the Jewish Christians who were doing it tough. But it was there, in Jerusalem of all places, that he ended up being clapped in chains. He appealed to the emperor, he appealed his case to the emperor and was sent to Rome to have that all sorted out under armed guard. And on the journey, he got stuck in Caesarea for two years while the governor, Felix, waited for him to bribe him. Justice was slow then as it is now. When he finally got sent to Rome, he sat there for another two years under house arrest, chained to a guard. That's right. Paul was locked down. And it's from his Roman lockdown that Paul writes his letter to the Christians in Philippi, the letter that we'll be looking at over the next couple of months. Now, perhaps you and I know a little bit of his situation, the boredom, the bewilderment, the frustration, the disappointment, the separation from loved ones. But Philippians is the letter which Paul writes, which is most full of joy. Eight times in these short pages... Paul either says that he is rejoicing or encourages the Philippians to rejoice. He speaks of his joy in praying for the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. And again I say, I say, rejoice. That comes from Philippians. So what is the source of Paul's joy? How is it that he's not ground down by his circumstances? And how can we have something like his joy? Well, that's what we've turned to Philippians to find out. But I'm going to give you a massive spoiler. Paul's joy comes from his fellowship with the Philippians in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God in Jesus that is a stronger force than the chains that bind him and that produces in him such a deep affection for those who share in Jesus with him. Now, as was the usual thing in the ancient world, letters begin with the author's name. And that's what we see here in the first couple of verses of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, It's not just he who is writing the letter, but Paul together with Timothy. And then we get to who the letter is addressed to, to the saints in Philippi. There's something very striking here. He and Timothy are writing, and how do they call themselves? Well, they call themselves servants of Christ Jesus. Only the word is douloi in Greek, which literally means slaves. In his other letters, Paul introduces himself as an apostle, which was his role as an authoritative messenger commissioned by Jesus Christ. But here, he chooses this striking word, slave. Now, let's not water it down. A slave was then, as now, a person of the utmost insignificance. They had no rights, and they existed to serve others. A slave was not in it for the money or for the glory. They couldn't be. It's certainly an odd way for a leader to introduce himself. And I've got to say, we don't really like our leaders to be like this, do we? We prefer our leaders to be powerful, to look successful, We prefer them qualified and experienced. We prefer them to have a name, to have a presence 
and to have an influence, to be going places and definitely not stuck in prison. We want them, in other words, to embody what we aspire to be in some way. And so we want the person of the most power and influence and glory and success to be our leader. So why does Paul call himself a slave? The risk is that the Philippians will have all their worst fears confirmed that Paul is a failure and a disappointment. Or that he's just looking like he's trying to be, he's begging for them to like him. I'll do anything you want. I'm your slave, as so many of our political leaders tend to do. But there's one thing, we should, there's two things we should notice here. First of all, whose slave is Paul? Who does he say he's the slave of? Well, he's not the Philippians' slave. He's not groveling to them. And neither is he, though he's in chains at Caesar's behest, Caesar's slave. He's the slave with Timothy of Christ Jesus, compelled to follow Jesus with everything he has, obedient to his master, Christ Jesus. And then secondly, who is this one then, Christ Jesus, to whom he's enslaved? Well, Jesus Christ said of himself, if you remember in Mark's gospel, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And later in Paul's letter in chapter 2, words that we will say a little bit later on today, he will point famously to Jesus' great humility that Jesus, heaven's crown prince, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a doulos, the same word that Paul uses to describe himself, a slave. But for Paul, this means that he calls himself the slave of one who made himself like a slave for him. If he's a slave of Christ, then he's a slave of one who has become like a slave for him. Now, this, of course, makes things very different uh, from how slavery works, where the slave just serves the interests of the master. With Jesus, the master serves. He washes our feet. He lays down his life for our sins and then calls us to follow him. In fact, he says uh, to Peter in the Gospel of John and that other reading we had this morning that we must let Jesus serve us if we're to have any part of Jesus. And here Paul says to the Philippians, as Christ's slave, I'm not here to exploit you or to be exploited by you, to boss you around or to be bossed around by you. I'm here to serve you in Christ Jesus, in the name of the one who came to serve us. Mostly, we think of leadership as about power and dominance, not about service. But here Jesus, through Paul, shows us another way to think about leadership, a, a way which is neither bullying nor pathetically weak. His focus is not on achieving metrics or on worldly success, but on obedience to Christ, submission to him. It is Christ to whom he is the slave. And that gives him enormous freedom to actually serve the Philippians as they need to be served. And Paul's determination to serve Christ Jesus, 
spills over into his deep affection and gratitude for the Philippians. We see this in verse 3 through to 5. At the heart of his connection with them is that they share together in Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians have been one of the most supportive and generous and hospitable communities in all of Paul's network. And he had some great times to remember with them. The conversion of Lydia and the church that gathered in her house. Uh, the conversion of the jailer and his family. There's so many names and faces that he remembers. And they haven't abandoned him, even though he is now in prison. They are standing with him in his struggle. They've inquired after him. And so he can't stop from giving thanks to God for them, especially for their sharing in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The Philippians had heard the gospel word and believed it with great joy. And once they heard it, they were like Paul. They shared his conviction that the whole world needed to know this news. And so they supported him, praying and giving generously to him as he continued on his missionary journeys. That They gave themselves to this task as he had done. And that's what fills Paul with such joy and gratitude, that they are partners together in the gospel of Jesus Christ with one another. Even though Paul was in prison now, their enthusiasm for the gospel had not waned and it was evidence of God's grace at work in them as it had been at work in Paul. Now, Paul's model of praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ really strikes me. It's Paul's joy in his fellow believers that leaps off the page here. I wonder if you noticed it. He doesn't thank them. It's interesting that he doesn't, he doesn't just say, I thank, I thank you, Philippians, for what you're like. He says, I thank God for, for you. I thank God for you. He sees in them evidence of the power of the gospel and praises God for them. And I wonder, could the same gratitude and joy fill your prayers? Is there someone whose faith gives you that joy in small ways as in large? Is there someone who is the cause of such an outpouring of thanks to God in your life? Do we thank God for the fellowship that we have with one another in Christ Jesus. Could you use this lockdown period, just as Paul used his lockdown period, to consciously remember the names and faces that God has brought to you and to thank him for them with joy for the fellowship that you share together in the good news of Jesus Christ? And like Paul... Could you tell them? See, Paul here is writing a letter to the Philippians to, 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 to acknowledge to them that he is thanking God for them. Could you do that? Be like Paul. Drop someone this week a note or a text. Write them a card. A card is a fantastic way just to, to communicate to someone. Let them know that you thank, not that you thank them, but that you thank God for them. Thank them by praying for them with joy and Paul is also thankful because he has such confidence in them 
He can see the Philippians as a sign of his hope. We see this in verse 6. They've shown such great persistence in their faith. But his confidence in their salvation is confidence because it is God at work in them. He can see the power of God at work in them. It's not their own spirituality or uprightness that gives him assurance. But the fact that it's God at work, the power of the God who raised Jesus from the, get, um, from the dead, it is this power in which Paul hopes and in which he shows his confidence, which he sees at work in the Philippian believers. God is at work miraculously, powerfully in his people to make them more and more like Christ, to make them persist. And that takes place little by little and day by day until the day when Jesus returns and that work is complete. Paul later says that he longs for the day when, Paul, when God will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like Jesus' glorious body. For now, Paul recognises God at work in the Philippians to transform them by his grace. Could you perhaps, again, see the signs of God at work in your fellow believers? Be more conscious of noticing the way in which God does his work miraculously to transform people and see, uh, see his power at work to encourage you in those changes. And that powerful work, that powerful grace at work in Paul and in the Philippians as they share together in the gospel results in a deep affection between them. That's what Paul shows in verses 7 and 8. He says in verse 7, you hold me in your heart. Clearly they've transmitted, communicated their affection for him to, to, to him. And then he makes this declaration of his love for them, which is really striking in verse 8. Unforgettable, in fact. He says, for God is my witness, how I long for you with all the compassion of Christ Jesus. Now that word compassion here is, is actually something more like guts. It's literally his guts. He's got the guts of Jesus Christ. And in the old English trans, older English translations, they used to use the word bowels, which doesn't really work for us today because we've specified the bowels and we mean something else by them. But he's really saying here, I've got the, my, I feel viscerally my longing for you. As you, I know, hold me in your heart. See, they've not just got a unity, but a union together. They are united in Jesus Christ, a powerful spiritual fellowship, a union that comes from a shared experience of God's grace. Even though they are separated in space, they are together in this powerful grace. And how does this work? It isn't that they've just been through the same thing, like people who've been to the same school, Something deeper and more profound. God's grace has brought them into a spiritual union with one another. They are now brothers and sisters in Christ. They together are forgiven sinners, brought by the blood of Christ into the family of God. You know, confession time. I don't always like those whom God has chosen as his. Not all of them are my type of person. And to be honest, to be fair, I'm not everyone's type either. 
I've sometimes said from this pulpit, I've said, well, with the church, you don't have to like them, but you do have to love them. That is, you don't have to feel anything for them, but you do need to act in a loving way. And that's not exactly wrong. There's something true about that. Church is difficult. Sometimes, like any family, we have our complexities. But that vision is rather frosty compared to what we see in these words in Philippians chapter 1, isn't it? Paul doesn't say, well, I don't really like you, but I do love you. He doesn't even just kind of send them a missing you guys note. He's yearning to be with them with the guts of Jesus Christ. How great a yearning is that? Jesus' compassion for his friends took him to the cross. His guts for them, his yearning for them, flowed out in blood. The grace of God in Jesus Christ so fills Paul that he positively craves to be reunited with his Philippian brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Do we long for one another with the affections of Christ, with the guts of Christ? Do we, could we say, share Christ's affection for one another? It's strange to be encouraged to feel something, since our feelings aren't always something we simply direct in us. But Paul's secret is not that the Philippians are such a nice bunch, they're pretty good as churches go, but that he has developed Christ's own heart, Christ's affections. He has learned from Jesus Christ to see the Philippians with Christ's heart for them, Christ's guts for them. He's allowed the grace of God in Jesus Christ to so transform him that it overflows in him with affection for those whom Christ has also saved. He cannot also not he cannot not also love those whom Christ so evidently loves. Now, I don't think this affection is missing amongst us here at St. Mark's. It moved me to tears last year when we were finally restored to meeting together once again, not only because I was feeling the joy of reunion, but I could see the joy of reunion amongst our community. Maybe in our mainly Anglo-Saxon habit of emotional distance, you and I have been afraid to show how deeply we mean to one another in Jesus Christ. And I should let you all know how often members of our church say, I love our church, I love our community, and how often there are quiet acts of kindness and affection expressed, quiet acts of generosity and recognition And how thankful people are for each other. Sometimes that's expressed to me and not publicly. And I think I should let the lid off that bottle. There is deep affection amongst us. But perhaps we should take this time of forced separation to inflame once more and more deeply this affection for one another. To remember to see each other as Christ sees us especially when sometimes it's difficult, and to pray to have more of his guts. Let's remember that we are partners in the gospel of the humble Messiah, the servant king. 
Paul's faith is never an isolated or individual experience. It fills him with compassionate love for his fellow believers, which comes from Jesus Christ. If we are to copy him, we should remember how deeply connected we are with one another and with Christians everywhere, sharing in the grace of God together as we do. And we should not limit this to our local fellowship, though we should, of course, experience it here. We are deeply enmeshed with Christians all over the world. We should develop Christ's heart, Christ's guts for the Christians, our Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea, in Nepal, in Nigeria, in Cambodia, in the grace of God, just as we are in our local community. So then, let us thank God for one another with joy for our fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray for one another and let us long for one another with Christ's guts. Now I need, though, to end on a personal note. In preparing this passage, I found that I identify very strongly with Paul's emotions here. Like him, I thank God for you and for your fellowship in the gospel. It is a joy to be in partnership with you. The little encouragements that you give to me, I, I am just richly blessed by them, week by week, day by day. It's a blessing to serve Christ with you and among you. I'm rewarded by it all the time. It's so disappointing to be separated from you now. I feel the ache of, dis of, of distance, though it is only for a short time, unlike Paul's separation from the Philippians, which went on for years. But like Paul, I long, and I hope you long too, for us to be together. And I long for that with the compassion of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.